The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. On December 12, 1984, dense fog shrouded M25 near Godstone, a city just a few miles south of London. The hazard warning lights on the highway were on but were ignored by most drivers. At 6.15 that morning, a truck carrying huge rolls of paper was involved in an accident and within minutes, the highway was engulfed in carnage. Dozens of cars were wrecked and 10 people were killed. A police patrol car was soon on the scene and two policemen, aware of the danger for those heading toward the wreckage on the highway, ran back up the motorway to stop uh, oncoming traffic. They waved their arms, they shouted as loud as they could, but most drivers took no notice and raced on towards the disaster that awaited them. The policemen then picked up traffic cones and flung them at the car's windshields in an attempt, a desperate attempt, to warn drivers of their danger. One of the policemen told how tears streamed down his face as car after car went by and he waited for the sickening sound of impact as they hit the growing mass of wreckage farther down the road. The people in those cars did not know they were hurtling towards destruction. None of them that day, in those moments ahead of that accident, could have thought that they would meet with disaster in just a few moments. They were happy. They were normal. They were carrying on without any awareness of the impending doom that was just in front of them. That is the reality for many people spiritually. Many, perhaps most, in the world are hurtling toward hell without an awareness of what awaits them. There is a disaster that all people will meet with if they haven't trusted Christ as Lord and Savior. There is an unforeseen catastrophe in store for those who die without Christ. They may think everything is fine. They may think everything is okay. They may feel like everything is comfortable at the moment. But in a short time, those without the Lord will meet with judgment. And those that do not know him will be lost in eternal punishment. This is not an easy thing to consider. This is not an easy topic to preach on. This is not a popular topic. And we understand then why many have come up with various other ways of explaining what happens after death. And I thought it may be helpful for you to hear some of these. These are false views today that 
undermined a correct understanding of the judgment that awaits the lost. These are views that others have come up with to try to explain away what we know the Bible to teach. Let me list a few of these for you. Number one is universalism. There are universalists. These are people who believe that God will eventually succeed in his purpose of winning all people to himself. That eventually all people will be saved. That is not what the Bible teaches. Number two, there are people who believe that unbelievers get a chance at salvation after death. This is known as post-mortem evangelism. It is the belief that God will give everybody an opportunity, whether in this life or the next life, to receive salvation. And since not everyone gets to hear the gospel in this life, then they must have an opportunity after they die to receive Christ. And that is not what the Bible teaches. Number three, you're familiar with the view of purgatory, the view of the Catholic Church, which believes that there is a place, a holding place, where a person's soul goes to after death to be cleansed of the sins that have not been fully cleansed in this life. They believe that the suffering can be shortened through the prayers and the good works of the living. So there is, in this view, a temporary holding pen for people to be purged of sin, to make them ready to be fit for heaven, and that's not what the Bible teaches. Number four, there is the view of annihilationism. The belief that the wicked are eventually annihilated, this view says that God is too loving and too kind to inflict any punishment, any eternal punishment on his creatures. And so because many find this concept of eternal conscious torment intolerable, they have come to the conclusion that God must just put them out of existence. And so when they read eternal destruction in the Bible, they believe that that's what it means. It means you go out of existence, that that's not what the Bible teaches. Number five, there are people who deny that hell is a real place. They believe that it is a state of those who separate themselves from God, not a real location. And so the megachurch pastor here in Grand Rapids in his book, Love Wins, says hell is a word to describe the very real consequences we experience when we reject the good and the true and the beautiful life that God has for us. It's a word that refers to the big, wide, terrible evil that comes from the secrets hidden deep within our hearts all the way to the massive society-wide collapse and chaos that comes when we fail to live in God's world, God's way. That's not what the Bible teaches But let me just say, I understand the desire to make the Bible say something that it doesn't say. I I, I get it. I, I sympathize in a sense with the fact that this is a hard doctrine. In, in fact, perhaps there's no more difficult doctrine to accept emotionally than, than this one. And if you have friends and family who you know are not the Lord's and you know are destined for judgment, you know the pain and the difficulty of thinking about this. It, in some senses, almost makes us 
sick to our stomach to think about this. But Scripture's clear. It is unambiguous. It is unapologetic of the fact that those who die in this life without Christ will face everlasting conscious torment in hell. And because that's what the Bible teaches, we cannot afford to be misinformed about this issue. If we are misinformed in any way about this issue, it will have eternal consequences. So we need to understand what the Bible says about this, and that's why Jesus frequently gave warnings about this, about impending judgment, and he did so as an act of mercy. He didn't do this because he wants to see people in hell and suffering in agony forever. He wants to rescue sinners. He wants to save sinners. He desires all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And so when Jesus addresses the topic of judgment, he does so as an act of mercy, as a warning sign, as a, an attempt, as it were, with those policemen throwing traffic cones before them so that they would stop and become aware of the danger before them. And we see this mercy once again displayed in Matthew 13 as we meet with this final parable of Jesus. It is the parable of the dragnet. And if you've been with us through our study of this chapter, you'll know that these seven parables in Matthew 13 are parables of the kingdom, the mystery age. We uh, learning, are learning that Jesus came to offer a kingdom, but he came to offer himself as the means to that kingdom. And so when he was rejected, the kingdom was postponed. And so now we're living in a mystery form of the kingdom between the two comings of Jesus. And in these seven parables, Jesus is telling us something about the nature of this age, this mystery form of the kingdom. And we've seen so far a number of things. We've seen that there will be various soils, various responses to Christ and his message We've also seen that this kingdom is going to start small and become very prolific in its influence. We saw last week that there's going to be a, a treasure, that Christ himself is the treasure. He's the pearl, and he's the one that we would be willing to give up anything to gain. And we saw a few weeks ago that there is going to be, in the parable of the wheat and the tares, believers who dwell right alongside unbelievers. They're going to coexist in the kingdom. And that we are to wait until the end of the age when Jesus will make it clear who belongs to what realm. Because then there's going to be a divine separation as Jesus comes and brings judgment and separates the wicked from the righteous. That same message is repeated in the parable of the dragnet. Follow along as I read verses 47 to 52. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach. And they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age 
the angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And Jesus said to them, therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings out from his treasure things new and old. This parable has essentially the same message as the parable of the wheat and the tares. There is a coming judgment. At the end of the age, there will be angels who are are used by Christ to separate the wicked from the righteous. And in fact, the lot of the wicked is described in the same terms in both of these parables. And so they carry essentially the same meaning, but they're different in some aspects. In the first parable, the parable of the wheat and the tares, it's an agricultural analogy of sowing seeds in a field. This one is a fishing analogy. And instead of emphasizing the fact that believers and unbelievers are going to dwell together and coexist together in this kingdom, this parable focuses and emphasizes the impending judgment. It's coming. Judgment is coming. The net has been laid out, and it will be dragged to the beach. So this is the message. And maybe in your minds you're thinking, why would Jesus give another parable that that tells us essentially the same thing as a previous parable? Why does he have to say it twice? Why is he giving the same message about judgment? And I wrestled with that question and I thought about this question and then I read William Hendrickson and he says this, is not this very repetition of the identical idea under another symbol, exactly what we should admire most of all. Does it not mean that the Savior is impressing upon his disciples both for their own good and for the good of those to whom they were to bring the message, the absolute certainty, the irrevocable decisiveness of the coming judgment in order that as far as possible to prevent everlasting despair? Does not the fact that from parables about sowers, mustard seed, yeast, hidden treasures, and pearls, illustrations with which they and most people were familiar, he now closes with series, his series, with one of the realm of fishing, with which the disciples were even more familiar. Does this not support this conclusion? Is he not telling them what you yourselves have been doing many a time or have seen your fellow disciples doing, namely pick out the bad from the good and discard them, will be done once for all by the angels at my order? Is he not implying, therefore, men everywhere should repent? This is God's mercy to us. Yes, we understand it from the parable of the wheat and the tares. Yes, we comprehend these realities, but do our hearts grasp them? This is another warning. This is an emphasis. This is another opportunity for us to say and for Jesus to say and for the disciples to hear, there is a coming judgment, and are you ready to meet with your maker? 
We need to hear these things over and over and over again. And I'm assuming most of you sitting here this morning, you know Christ, you love Christ, you're going to be exempt from that judgment. Praise the Lord. You're, you're not gonna stand in judgment for your sins because of what Christ has done for you. But perhaps you're sitting here in the hearing of my voice and this is not the case for you. Maybe you're still on the fence with Jesus. And maybe you've never truly submitted your life to him. And if that's the case, you need to hear this warning. Added to this is the fact that all of us have people in our life who don't know and love Christ. And the question I would pose to you is, has your heart in any way become numb to these realities? Are you numb to their eternal destiny? Are you unmoved by their spiritual state? Are you in any way unaffected by the fact that they are like those people on the highway in England headed for certain doom? And so we need to hear these words. As hard as they are to hear and as difficult as they are for us to hear them, we, we must hear them again. And so I want to give you this morning two points. One is the lessons from the dragnet and then we'll look at number two, lessons from the householder. Let's look at these together. First, number one, lessons from the dragnet. Verse 47, notice again, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. This is a net. Don't think here a little net that you might use to catch those little cute bluegill out of your backyard pond. That's not the net. This is a massive net, perhaps a quarter mile, even half a mile wide, a massive net with weights at the bottom and floats at the top. It's a sane net, a large vertical net that would either be tethered to the land on one side and then attached to a boat on the other side where the boat would make a sweeping motion or it's attached to two boats who together drag this net towards the shore and everything in its way gets caught in that net which is why Jesus says in verse 47 it gathers fish of every kind anything caught in its way will be caught up and trapped in this net. It's a massive net. And you can imagine a massive net like this filled with fish and other creatures is almost impossible to, to haul in into a boat. That's why it was frequently hauled into a shore. You remember back in Luke chapter five, Jesus says to Peter, put out the, into the deep water and let your nets down for a catch. And Simon did that, Peter did that. And it says in Luke five, six, when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. And they signaled to their partners in the boat, the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. Massive nets. Jesus is describing this situation where the net's being pulled toward shore and eventually it reaches shore. Look at verse 48. And when it was filled, they drew it up to the beach and they sat down and they gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. It's, it's a very simple story. In fact, it's something these men, most of these men did every single day. Most of them were fishermen. 
A few of the disciples weren't. Matthew was a tax collector, but most of them had made their living prior to becoming a disciple as fishermen. They would have understood this because this was their life. This was their profession. They would go set the nets. They would go out there. They would cast them overboard. They would then begin to move the boats into the land. They, they understood what was taking place. They were, they were moving towards shore. And then when they got to shore, it was so heavy, they would literally drag it onto shore. And they would sit down on the beach. And in that hall of fish, there were good fish, those that could be eaten. And there were bad fish that could not be eaten because they were either unclean and prohibited by the Levitical law or because they were diseased or because they were some other creature that they couldn't eat. And so you can just imagine the scene. These disciples would be sitting on the beach and they would say, good fish, bad fish, good fish, bad fish, and they would separate them. That's the parable. Pretty easy to understand. What does it mean? Jesus tells us. Look at verse 49. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus interprets the parable for us. He tells us what it means. He doesn't leave us to figure it out. He clearly describes the parable as pointing to the last judgment. We know that because look at verse 49. He says, so it will be at the end of the age. He tells us this is what it's going to be like. And by the way, he's already told us this up in verse 39. Look up in verse 39 from the parable of the wheat and the tares. He said, the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age. He's telling us what it's going to be like in the end times. This is an eschatological parable. He's teaching us about judgment. He wants us to understand how things are going to end. And don't you love the fact that Jesus has not left us to wonder, God has not left us to wonder about how the end times are going to happen. It's clear. Very clear. He's mapped it out for us. He's told us how it's going to happen. We don't have to guess. He's declared to us very clearly how the end is going to take place. And he's speaking about the end of this age. And at the end of this age, which is just at his second coming, these events will take place. By the way, I love the fact that this is a reminder of the fact that history has already been predetermined. You understand this, right? History is not random. The events happening in this world are not by chance. What's going on in your life is not just some happenstance situation that God is unaware of. No, everything on a global scale, everything on an individual scale, everything that happens on this planet in this universe has been specifically ordained by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And you can rest in that. Individually, when your health goes bad and when your finances come up short, you can rest in that politically when the wrong person gets elected to office. Wrong person. You can rest in this globally when you watch things happen around the world. We are not in charge of history. God is in charge of history. He knows what is happening because he's ordained it. He's declared the end from the beginning. There is a plan. God is in charge of those plans. He has predetermined how it's all going to end, and we are not in control of that. None of us are, but he is. 
And so he tells us, at the end of the age, there's going to be a separation. And notice it's going to be carried out by the angels. The angels will come forth, verse 49, and take out the wicked from among the righteous. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, didn't we, with the angels. We, we said that the angels are God's ministers of judgment. They do many, many, many things. They worship God. We see that in Isaiah chapter 6. We also know that they are mediators of God's law. Galatians 3 and Acts 7 tell us that. We also know that they communicated God's message to his people. We just heard that this morning in the reading of Luke chapter 1. The angel announces the arrival of John the Baptist and the arrival of Jesus Christ. They communicated God's message to his people. We also know that angels serve believers in times of need. Think of Daniel and the lions then. Who was it who shut the lion's mouth? It was the angels. And so angels do a variety of things and they have a variety of ministries. But here we see another ministry. They are instruments of God's judgment. And I said it a couple of weeks ago, this makes us think a little bit differently about angels, doesn't it? Second Thessalonians 1 verse 7 says, the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Revelation 7, verse 2, I saw another angel descending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. Read Revelation 8 and 9. The seven trumpet judgments are unleashed by the angels. Read the seven bull judgments in Revelation 16. They are all released by angels. And in Revelation 20 verse 1, it says, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. You think about angels this way? They're not cute, chubby, haloed creatures floating in heaven playing a harp. Some of them are instruments of God's justice. And at the end of the age, they are going to do the divine separating. Notice again verse 49, they're going to take out the wicked from among the righteous. They're going to take out the bad fish from the good fish. They're going to, as it were, sit on the beach. And after the hall has come in and the judgment has arrived, they're going to parse out each and every single person. And they're going to put some in the pile of the bad fish. And they're going to put some in the pile of the good fish. Some wicked, some righteous. And notice verse 50. And they will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
Jesus doesn't tell us in this parable what he's going to do with the righteous, but we already know from verse 30 and verse 43. Look up in the previous parable. Verse 30 says, Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them into bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Then he tells us in verse 43, the righteous are those who are gathered into the barn. They will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. So we know what's going to happen to the righteous. They are going to be taken to be with the father. They are going to enjoy eternal bliss and eternal joy with the father as he gathers them to himself. But we also learn what's going to happen to the wicked. Look up in verse 41 and 42 into the previous parable, the son of man will send forth his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom and all the stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's the same thing he says in verse 50. He will throw them into the furnace of fire and in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping, referring to the sorrow, the grief, the inconsolable hopelessness that will overwhelm those in hell, the emotional torment, the emotional agony of being lost and being in awareness of the fact that they are under judgment. And then the gnashing of teeth, this could refer to physical pain, the excruciating pain that will be inflicted on those who do live and experience eternity in hell. It could be referring to the physical agony of that, or perhaps it is referring to the fact that they will, in those moments and in those last days and into eternity, they will forever and always clench their teeth in rebellion against the God who has justly and rightly condemned them there. Unspeakable anguish and untold grief. This is what will happen. This is not a fairy tale. This is not fiction. This is not some made-up story intended to make people afraid and make them run to religion. No, this is reality. This is how it's going to play out. This is exactly what's going to happen. When Jesus returns, he's going to separate the good fish from the bad fish, the righteous from the wicked. In fact, go over to Matthew chapter 25. Hold your finger here in Matthew 13 and turn over a few chapters to the right to Matthew chapter 25 because he tells us that this is exactly how it's going to be. Again, as if we need another warning, this is the third one in the book of Matthew. He tells us the exact same thing using a little bit different terms, but it's the same message. This is the judgment that will take place at the second coming. Notice verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. 
And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. And I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. And I was a stranger and you invited me in naked and you clothed me. And I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. You see what he's saying? You're going to give evidence that you belong to the king by how you treat fellow believers. Verse 41, then he will say to these on the left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Notice that. Who is hell prepared for? It was prepared for the devil and his demons. That's why there is a lake of fire and there is an eternal place known as hell. But all who join him will also join the devil and his minions in that place. For I was hungry, verse 42, and you gave me nothing to eat, and I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink, and I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in naked, and you did not clothe me sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And then they will answer, or they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And he will answer them, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Then notice verse 46, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Go back to Matthew 13. You see, there's going to be a divine separation. You're either a sheep or you're a goat. You're either a wheat or you're a tare. You're either a good fish or you're a bad fish. You're either wicked or you're righteous. These are some haunting realities. And I know we probably don't need to hear more, but let me just give you some traits of hell that make it a horrible place. Three of them. First is the suffering the suffering of hell, there will be conscious torment of those in hell beyond our imagination. They will be in constant misery, constant pain, constant torment. It's described, as we just saw, as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's also variously described in the New Testament as a place of fire, a place of outer darkness where the worm never dies a place of immense thirst. Some people have asked me, do you think there's real fire there? Or real worms or real darkness? I don't know. But I can tell you it will be far worse than those realities symbolize. Jesus is using terms that we can grab onto. He is, he is relating terms to us that we can understand 
And if it's those terms, then I promise you it's going to be far worse than what those terms represent. Some have asked me, well, how can there be fire and darkness in the same place? I, I don't know. That's not the point. These symbols speak of something that point to a reality that is far more painful than we can even imagine. Listen to Calvin. Now, because no description can deal adequately with the gravity of God's vengeance against the wicked, their torments and tortures are figuratively expressed to us by physical things, that is, by darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth and unquenchable fire and undying worm gnawing at the heart. Then he says this, by such expressions, the Holy Spirit certainly intended to confound all of our senses with dread. That's his way of saying it's going to be far worse than the terms fire or darkness or worm can even express. So the first trait of hell that makes it so horrific is the suffering. The second one is the length. It's forever. Forever and ever and ever it is endless, a total absence of hope because it will never come to an end. I'm going to read Jonathan Edwards to you. It's going to be hard for you to hear, but I want you to hear it. This is how he describes it. We can conceive but little of the matter. But to help your conception, imagine yourself to be cast into a fiery oven or a great furnace where your pain would be as much greater than that occasioned by accidentally touching a coal of fire as the heat is greater. Imagine also that your body were to lie there for a quarter of an hour full of fire. What horror would you feel at the entrance of such furnace? How long would that quarter of an hour seem to you? And after you had endured it for one minute... How overbearing would it be to think that you had to endure it another 14 minutes? But what would be the effect on your soul if you knew you must lie there enduring that torment to the full 24 hours for a whole year, for 1,000 years? And then would not your heart sink if you knew that you must bear it forever and ever, that there would be no end? That after millions and millions of ages, your torment would be no nearer to an end, and that you would never, never be delivered. And then he says this, but your torment in hell will be immensely greater than this illustration represents. It's forever. So it's the suffering. It's the length. Thirdly, it's also the recollection. It's the recollection. It's remembering the blessings of your previous life and your lost chances. You get this from Luke chapter 16, verse 24, where Jesus is telling the story about the rich man and Lazarus 
And the rich man in hell cries out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue for I'm in agony in this flame. And Abraham said, child, remember that during your life you received good things. And likewise, Lazarus, bad things, but now he's being comforted here and you are in agony. It has to be one of the most chilling statements in the Bible. That those in hell will be recollecting, they will be remembering their previous good life. And let me just say that if you are without Christ, this is as good as life gets for you. So that's how scripture describes it. Listen to Luther, this is of little importance whether a person holds hell to be what now men paint or picture it to be. No doubt it now is and will be far worse than anyone is able to describe, picture, or think it to be. And then someone has written these words. There's no way to describe hell. Nothing on earth can compare with it. No living person has any real idea of it. No madman in wildest flights of insanity ever beheld its horror. No man in delirium ever pictured a place so utterly, utterly terrible as this. No nightmare racing across a fevered mind ever produces a terror to match that of the mildest hell. No murder scene ever suggested a revulsion that could touch the borderlands of hell. Please don't underestimate the horrors of hell. It is not one big party. It is an eternity of living under the justice and the holy judgment of the King of kings and the Lord of lords whom people had an opportunity to receive and rejected and spurned in this life. But do you see why this is a mercy to us? Do you see why God in his grace and his kindness warns us? He's giving us every opportunity to hear. He's giving every opportunity to repent. He's giving every opportunity to turn from sin and embrace Christ so that that reality is not true for anybody if they would receive him as Lord and Savior. So let me ask you this morning, what camp are you in? You're in one or the other. There's no third category. There's not an in-between. You're not partially in one or the other or both. You are one or the other. You are either a sheep or a goat. You're a good fish or a bad fish. You're wicked or righteous. That's it. There's no other categories. And so when the dragnet hits the beach and is dragged ashore, what will you be shown to be? Have you come to Christ? Do you know Christ? Have you given your life to Christ? Do you know that he came to rescue sinners? Do you understand that you are one of those sinners he came to rescue? Have you embraced him? Have you cast yourself on the mercy of Christ? Do you know him so that when that great separation day does come and you're gonna be gathered into his kingdom rather than knowing eternal destruction, do you have that confidence? Do you know 
Or do you keep rejecting, resisting, putting Christ off, thinking I'll deal with it later? You may not have tomorrow. There is a judgment. The net has been set and it's being pulled to the shore. So this is what we learn from the dragnet. Number two, very quickly, lessons from the householder. Some think that this is another parable. Perhaps it is, or perhaps it's just kind of a summary of this last one. Notice verse 51, Jesus says, have you understood all these things? And the disciples said to him, yes. (laughs) I'm not sure they actually did. And from the things that they did and said after this, I'm pretty sure they didn't understand everything that Jesus has just told them. But Jesus doesn't challenge them at this point. He, he knows that they're weak. He knows that they're frail. He knows that they have to see his death and resurrection, and then they're going to comprehend. So I don't think they understand everything, but there's something that he wanted them to grasp. It's verse 52. Jesus said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. He's talking about a head of a house, father, husband, grandfather, someone in charge of that house, maybe a master servant. Someone's in charge of that house, and heads of households are responsible for supplying what is needed to the house, food and clothes and provision and everything else that household might need. And so they have a store, they they have a storehouse, they have a treasury, they have a place where things are stored that they can use to serve their house that they're responsible for. Some of those things are old that have been there for a while and some of those things are recently gathered, but they're all in the storehouse and they're all there meant to serve that house. And Jesus is saying to the disciples, You're now the heads of house. And you have things in your house, in your storehouse that you know from the Old Testament that you've learned at that time. And there's things that I've taught you. Those are some of the old things. But I've just taught you something new in this chapter. And so you've got it all accessed. It's all available to you. You have things that were old that you've understood. Now you have new things that I've just taught you. And so his point is, just like the head of the household was to share all that he had in his storehouse, to care for his house and his family, now the disciples were to share all that they learned. They're the heads of house. And so now they're to go provide these things. Notice again verse 52. He brings out of his treasure things new and old. He's saying to the disciples, you've got to bring these things out. I've taught these things to you. Now you know them. Now go bring them out. Now go proclaim them. Go tell the world these things. Tell them specifically in light of the dragnet parable that a net is coming. Sound the alarm. Warn them about the coming judgment. Tell them so they know. That's a word to do. We're to do the same thing. We don't sit on this treasure and say, us for, us for, bar the door, nobody more. We've been given this treasure and now we want to give it to others. 
And when you have a treasure like the gospel and you see people heading for eternal doom, how can you not give it away? How can you not tell others? 2 Corinthians 5.11, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Verse 20, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, therefore we, O our ambassadors of Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Are you doing this? When's the last time you begged someone to come to Christ? When's the last time you pleaded with somebody? Spurgeon says, have you no wish for others to be saved, then you're not saved yourself. The great missionary C.T. Studd said, some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell, but I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Is that you? Who's in your life who doesn't know Christ? Who do you know who's lost? Who do you know who's without a savior? Who do you know who's on the highway and there's impending doom moments away? Who's in your life? Are you bringing things out of your storehouse, proclaiming those realities to them? Father, we need to hear these things. These are hard things. Difficult truths because, Lord, they affect so many people. And we know that these words are true. We know that there's a judgment coming. And so, Lord, if there's any in this room who are watching who are not yours, Bring them to yourself before the dragnet arrives. And Lord, for those of us who know you, would you please give us opportunities and boldness and courage to make the most of every opportunity to take this saving message of Christ to the lost and dying world around us. Use us. Use us as your vehicles for the gospel to go forth that the lost may be rescued and avoid impending doom. In your name we pray, amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.